Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the HPBA podcast. In this episode, we had the privilege of interviewing Dr. Julie Hallett. Dr. Hallett is a surgical oncologist at Sunnybrook Health Sciences Center, assistant professor at the University of Toronto, and associate scientist at the Sunnybrook Research Institute. Both her clinical and research interests include the care of patients with HPB and upper GI malignancies, and in particular, neuroendocrine tumors. We had a great discussion taking a deep dive into pancreatic neuroendocrine neoplasms and Dr. Hallett's research work with the Restore Cancer Group. We also talked briefly about social media and patient engagement. We're really excited about sharing the interview with you and hope you all enjoy the episode. Welcome back to the HPBA podcast. We're very excited to have with us Julie Hallett today, who's a well-known name in the HPBA and IHPBA, so probably needs very little introduction. So we're going to cover a number of topics today, but again, we'd like to just kind of start off here in your story, how you got to where you are today uh, and sort of what your training was, et cetera. Oh, thanks for inviting me and having me on this podcast. I've been listening to it for a while now, and it's uh, very honored to be a guest on it now. Course, um, yeah. I feel like I've, I've arrived in the HPBA <laughs> world. Um, so I guess my story is uh, maybe a little bit different um, because I, I didn't think I would be where I am when I started my residency training. I was born and raised in Quebec City, which is a, a city in Quebec, which is a French, the French side of Canada. And uh, so I got into med school there uh, pretty early. We get into med school almost right out of high school in Quebec. So I got into med school at 18 years old. And needless to say, I wasn't sure exactly what I was doing at the time or where I would be going. And um, eventually decided to apply to uh, general surgery. And, and again, I started general surgery residency at the age of 23. So, you know, it was wow. something that I loved. Um, but I, I didn't know really where that would take me. And I didn't have a specific plan in mind other than I liked operating and, and I liked the feel. And I liked the fact that general surgery has some component of medicine to it, like we're very involved in perioperative management. And that's something I really felt I needed in, in my future practice. And then as I was doing my first few rotations, I had the opportunity to uh, ro uh, have a rotation with the surgical oncology service and some of the first specialized HPV surgeons um, in the city. And uh, that really had a huge impact on me. I really loved those clinics. Um, I had a chance to go to the clinics with one of the staff there who did a lot of neuroendocrine tumors. And that was within my first three months um, in residency and, and really shaped what I ended up doing at the end. Um, so that's when I decided I, I love surgical oncology, wanted to do that. Although over time that changed, uh, like everybody, I think I did ICU, I loved the ICU. I thought I'd be an ICU physician and do surgery on the side. That didn't last very long. <laughs> I went back to active surgical practice fairly quickly. And then um, as I was going through residency, I, I enjoyed this sort of academic aspect and, and research, and there wasn't a lot of research being done in my program, and I felt like I didn't have the tools I needed to conduct the studies I had in mind or answer the questions um, that I had. So I, I decided to enter a master's program in clinical epidemiology during residency. Um, that wasn't something that a lot of people had done in my program. So um, I didn't have the ability to just, you know, take two years or three years of clinical work. Um, that was a bit complex. So I, I found a way to do all my coursework um, while actively working as a wow. resident full time. Um, wow. And That's yeah, tough. so I mean, the great thing is I had a program director who was very, very supportive. Um, so we were able to sort of arrange my schedule around that. So the I did a lot of online classes, and when I had to be uh, in, per like in person for classes uh, for those semesters, he would give me the rotations where I had the ability to do that, like peds or thoracics. Um, and uh, I would go in the morning, round on all the patients, um, and then after round was done, sort of hand over on the resident who was on site, and, and then go to my class and come back for noon uh, to be in the operating room. So, I mean, that was a lot of work, but um, it, it was worth it. I think I was one of the first ones to uh, graduate from residency with, uh, with a master's in clinical epidemiology. And uh, from there, I went into uh, general surgical oncology at the University of Toronto. And they had this program where you can do um, hepatobiliary surgery within the surgeon program. So there's a dedicated year within the two-year surgeon fellowship. And so that's what I did. And that's really where I think I also learned what big research endeavors were. Like I had never seen something like the University of Toronto, like I came from a 
sort of smaller academic program and um, see the level of research that was done, having all like the support from the staff, the, uh, the research admins and all of that really showed me what could be done and, and how exciting it was. And so that's why when a job opened in that center, I, I decided to, uh, to apply and, and stay in Toronto and have a really um, a clinical investigator uh, role moving forward. So that's how I came to what I'm doing now. That's awesome. Tell us about your practice now in Toronto and, and what you see most of and where you've taken that training. Yeah, so the, the great thing in Ontario is that we have a regionalized or a subspecialized cancer system uh, for a number of cancer sites, including a pedobiliary. Uh, so what this means is that by policy in Ontario, um, a pedobiliary surgery can only be performed in 11 centers for about a 14 million population. Um, so that, that allows us to have practices that are only focused on HPV. So I'm a surgical investigator at the University of Toronto. So that means I'm 50% uh, clinical, 50% research. And in the 50% clinical, I'll, I do only surgical oncology. Um, so all pancreas, liver cancers. Uh, we do also upper GI, so all the gastric adrenals come to us. And um, within that, I subspecialize also for neuroendocrine tumors. So I would say that about a third of my practice right now is um, devoted to neuroendocrine tumors. And we have a multidisciplinary clinic here at the Susan Leslie neuroendocrine tumor clinic um, with medical oncology, radiation oncology, and surgical oncology all specialized in, in neuroendocrine. So that, that's a bit what I'm doing right now. A little sidebar, but where does a small bowel neuroendocrine fall into that world? Like, are there surgical oncologists who do mostly you know, small bowel, is it that specialized or do those fall into your practice as an HPV surgeon? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, they, because it's a bit different depending on the centers, right? So for us, they mm -hmm. fall under HPV. Uh, we're really, okay. I mean, HPV is the way people know us because that's easy uh, and everybody knows what an HPV surgeon is, but we're really HPV and upper GI. So yeah. small bowel is considered upper GI. And really, I think like it, it fits well, right? Because often those patients also have liver mets. So we're able to take care of both the small bowel and the liver mets. And one of the challenges is also the mesenteric dissections, right? Yeah. Like dissecting nodes high up on the SMA. And, and I think that DHPB training and, and skill set um, really helps there. So it's, it's, a, it's a very good setting. So there's, um, there's four HPB surgeons in my center um, and two of us um, do neuroendocrine and, and share that practice. So we'll do the whole gamut of neuroendocrine tumors except for lungs. Um, lung cancer will go to our sister hospital uh, the Toronto East General where they have dedicated thoracic surgeons again it's a regionalized cancer system so thoracics uh, can only be done in, in a certain number of centers as well. Also in your training you did minimally invasive surgery training I may I missed that right so how much of your practice are you doing MIS particularly HPV focused MIS and in Canada what's the ratio of that in terms of approach? Yeah <clears throat> that's a tough one because uh, the answer is I don't do as much as I wish I would. Um, so yeah. I went to uh, uh, to ERCAD in Strasbourg. Um, mm -hmm. For those who don't know what ERCAD is, like look it up. Um, they have a wonderful <laughs> video library called Web Surge. Um, I've learned watching those videos in residency. It's incredible. So going there was like, you know, I was sort of fangirling over all the surgeons I had seen operate on Web Surge when I got there, and then they were allowing me into the operating room. Um, so that, that was a great experience. And um, so I went there for four months after I finished fellowship and the hospital like Sunnybrook that recruited me, uh, supported me to go there. I came back hoping I would do everything they did over there. Um, and those illusions were quickly <laughs> dissolved, I guess. <laughs> Prior to the pandemic, uh, we were sort of building this up much more. Um, I would say that probably about 25% of my practice was MIS. Uh, one caveat is we don't have a robot at my institution. Robots are not very commonplace in Canada for cost reasons uh, because it's a public uh, funded healthcare system. And um, so everything was lap, so all distal panks would be doing laparoscopically. Um, central pancreatectomies, when they were appropriate, uh, would do lap as well. Um, we had made a conscious choice of not doing laparoscopic whipples uh, for a number of reasons. Um, and uh, lap livers, I would say, was about 25%. And, and the challenge, I think it depends on the type of practice, right? Because our practice in livers is uh, mostly neuroendocrine tumors and colorectal liver metastases. Mm -hmm. um, so with colorectal liver mets, with the parenchymal sparing, 
you know, the lap left or the lap right, um, they're not that common anymore. Like we have a lot of those, you know, we're going to do like five or six wedges and having to reposition the patient twice during the operation to get to all of those sometimes, you know, it's very time consuming and maybe better to just get the patient through a faster operation open. Um, so that, that's one thing that sort of limits the ability. I think that centers that do more um, HCC, for example, it's probably easier mm-hmm. to build up on the, the laparoscopic practice. But we were doing a number of um, dome lesion, posterior sector wedges using sort of lateral approaches and transthoracic mm-hmm. ports, uh, posterior sectorectomies, um, and, and that sort of thing uh, when, when they were indicated. Yeah. I think that's a great point. I mean, that's come up in a few of our interviews about you know, how like everybody wants to push the MIS envelope, but at the same time, this evolution around mole sparing has happened and you don't know that the two go together very well. And I think you really have to be able to use ultrasound well to do good mole sparing surgery and lap ultrasound. It's good, but it, I find it more difficult to really do those fine deep dissections, uh, MIS. And that's why I just feel like as we move more and more towards mole sparing, we're stuck with the open for now anyway, until I think better techniques or uh, tools are developed, particularly, yeah. you know, not, not so much that you're using the robot, but I think robot, you struggle a little bit with the fine dissection because that tool doesn't really exist. Um, yeah, and, um, so. The robot might help with it. The other thing that um, I learned about at AirCAD was augmented reality. Um, I don't think it's mm-hmm. ready for prime time or, you know, why spread application, but um, having the ability to see in 3D and those overlays like in real time would be super helpful, especially for deeper tumors that you can guide your dissection. Um, That would be helpful. But you know, one thing I learned over there, because they're so good, right? They can do anything Mm -hmm. lap. So they don't have to prove to people that they can technically do stuff. Like they can, we all know it, they know it, they have nothing to prove. And so at the end of the day, what I loved over there is I really learned about when is the MIS approach beneficial for the patient? Um, and, you know, sometimes, yes, you could do three complex wedges with mm-hmm. repositioning and, and take your time and all that for like an eight hour surgery, or you can do those three wedges in two to three hours open. And maybe depending on who the patient is, that's better for them. And, and that's really like beyond a technical learning, like that part of the decision-making and judgment that I learned over there was very, very valuable. Yeah, I agree with you. I think that the robot does help for parenchymal sparing resections compared to lap, at least in my personal experience, just because you can kind of go all over the place and you have the wrists. And so you're limited. You're not as limited, I think, by patient positioning. Um, but uh, I definitely agree with you. Yeah, well, yeah, exactly. Well, I mean, some people use it as well, right? right use it right. along with the robot. Um, I have not personally done that, but if you have a bedside assistant using the CUSA, you can do a lot more fine section with that. I think it might be, um, you know, it might be interesting with a robot as well, like in the future, like, you know, thinking like forward is the augmented reality will be easier with the robot because it has sort of stereotactic um, capture of the image. And so that makes it easier to register the preoperative images to the intraoperative uh, field. Mm -hmm. So that might be, you know, if you combine both the the better access to more difficult location with the ability to have easier augmented reality or navigation, maybe the robot will just be the future of like pushing the envelope for lap livers. That's coming. I mean, that, that that's coming and we see it on in social media. We see it on the internet. Um, I know that that's coming for a lot of different companies. So that's going to be huge. I totally agree. Well, without the robot, Julie, what, what's like, what's the, what's coming for lap surgery? Are you doing anything new or using like the 3d monitors or anything like that? Or do you feel like that stuff is sort of on the fringes and, uh, and the future is robots? Um, I think both are the future. The robot might be the ideal combination of everything. Like what might bring everything together. Right. Uh, but you know, dissemination and being able to have the equipment is, uh, might be a challenge. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's coming. What will be interesting is the intraoperative navigation. Um, and, yeah. and there's different ways people are studying right now. Um, augmented reality, if we can have ongoing registration will be interesting. Right. So, because so what I mean by augmented reality is those 3d models that we can construct based on the patient pre-op imaging, then having an overlay of that over the intraoperative image. Um, but the, the problem is that it's done a lot right now for neurosurgery, for example, because it's mm-hmm. easy for them. They can say, oh, this is the bone. And then they use the plate that where the bone is positioned on the intraop image and on the 3D model to register and, and put both together. Mm-hmm. 
-hmm. For deliver, it's more complex than that because the bones don't move. Um, yeah, brain yeah. moves very little. The liver moves a lot just like because we move it. Also laparoscopically, just a pneumoperitoneum, heartbeat, um, breathing can, can make like small changes that will completely change the overlay and then it's not accurate anymore. But there's lots of people um, working on ways that we can do that. And I think if, if that pans out, if we're able to register and, and have, that, to have that overlay done in real time, that will be great. Because the limitations we had when I was at ERCAT is uh, the overlay had to be done by a human in um, mm. like at the console that would sort of, you know, fit the 3D model to the entropy image we had. And if we moved a bit, they had to refit it again. Oh, so, wow. you know, they were so good that it would do it within just a few minutes. Um, but you can see how that's very time consuming. Uh, Whereas if it yeah. were to just be done automatically, um, that, that would be super useful. So I feel like that, that really will, will change the game in terms of, um, of MIS, whether it's robotically or, or laparoscopically. Fiducials. Well, yeah, the fiducials <laughs> are helpful. And then the ability for the, the model or the software to understand how the liver is moving and how the yeah. liver is reacting. So right now what we're, we're doing is we're, um, we have funding to start a study about the 3D models and how um, they actually impact um, decision making because everybody's very exciting, excited about this. Um, you know, they look great, they're fun, it's a nice tool, uh, it's a nice story, like I like to say, but does it really make a difference in patient outcomes? We don't sh for sure know. So, we're going to do um, a little study looking at changes in decision making and in planning around that, and also use uh, the 3D models with some of those, um, I think it's called HoloLens, like they're. Um, super fancy um, glasses you can wear in the operating room and maybe start just with like port positioning using that model um, to mm. see the liver mm. overlay on the patient's um, skin to know where we're going to make our incisions that or would place be our cool. ports. Cool. Yeah. So yeah, we're going to start cool. with simple things. Uh, one of my colleagues at Sunnybrook um, is an anesthesiologist who's also the director of the Sim Lab. Um, and they're doing a set of work like that for simulation and anesthesia. And he's working with a number of surgeons in different disciplines so that we can bring that, that technology um, to the surgical field. Cool. That's me. Incredible. Yeah, I'm really excited about it. We'll see if it works out, right? It's always exciting when you talk about it until you start yeah. like having like all the barriers and, and roadblocks as you're trying to actually do it. Yeah. If you want external validation, let me know. <laughs> oh, of course. <laughs> I'll be sure to reach out. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I mean, I think that point about the liver moving constantly is, is really important that, that, you know, an onlay doesn't work so well when you're constantly tugging the liver left and right. And, and even as you progress through the Prinkamol transection, you intentionally are going to keep moving it more and more and more and more. So, yeah, that's very interesting. It's a big hurdle to get over. So we wanted to lean on your expertise in neuroendocrine tumors uh, to have a little discussion around that topic. We have a, you know, a lot of trainee listeners, so it's nice to go in depth on topics like this. So I thought I'd kick it off by a recent tweet I saw from you that reads, and I quote, repeat after me, sporadic non-functional peanuts less than two centimeters do not need resection. So, uh, yeah. you know, I figured we could just talk with, start with that, you know, talk about kind of the non-functional peanuts, you know, what your threshold for resection is. And, you know, I think in some ways, when I teach residents about that, I always say this is based on nothing. Like the data around this question is really bad. And so, you know, how do you feel confident about when you should and shouldn't cut these things out? Um, well, I think the data is stuff, but like I've, I've read it several times, went through it trying to convince other people I was right. Um, so I, I finally made a sense out of it, at least something that makes sense to me, uh, which yeah. means supports my own bias, uh, like a lot of surgeons. Um, one thing I think we have to remember with neuroendocrine tumors is that, um, and that's not only about pancreas, but a, a lot of them is, they're very slow growing and we like to think they're, you know, indolent, but they have very prolonged survival. And in some cases, um, their risk of death from other causes, so not from cancer causes, is much higher than the risk of death from cancer. So meaning that, you know, um, other causes place a higher threat to their life than the tumor they have. And that's true for small peanuts, uh, small non-metastatic gastric neuroendocrine, and small non-metastatic rectal neuroendocrine. So when we think about that, that I'm just saying that to say, you know, the treatment should not be more toxic than the tumor itself. And so for peanuts, when we do, when we observe, what I usually tell patients is, if we operate on this, the operation presents a higher risk for you than the tumor being there. And, and usually they understand that quite well. 
But when I talk about that, it's some very specific um, circumstances, right? It's not all small peanuts. So it's peanuts that are small, below two centimeters, uh, sporadic, so they're not related to a genetic syndrome like mm -hmm. MEN, for example, and non-functional. So we're, but thankfully, you know, 90% of peanuts are non-functional. So that's a good thing. But when we look at those lesions, the reality is when they are observed, um, they rarely uh, or even never metastasize, grow beyond what can be resected mm -hmm. uh, or cause um, cancer-related death. And the reason I sent that tweet is because um, I think Alyssa Clyde from the Medical College of Wisconsin had showed a poster um, that her resident had, or her medical students, or even better, medical yeah, student presenting yeah. a poster at ASCO. That was awesome. Yeah. Um, uh, so presented, and what they showed with their data is exactly that, is the patients that had small peanuts, sporadic, non-functional, that were observed, um, did not progress to metastatic disease, did not progress to unresectable disease, and did not have any cancer-related death. So, you know, we can go into the details as to the, the reasoning behind it, but I think that, you know, when you, when you see stuff like that, and there's similar data from the Toronto General Hospital and uh, from Earl Stone Kettering as well, mm -hmm. I think the proof is in the pudding, right? Like, patients do well without it. So it, it might makes it, it makes us happy as surgeon to operate and, and to make to create a beautiful CT scan with no tumor on it. Um, yeah, exactly. But you know, if I were a patient, I would rather take the MRI every so often than uh, mm -hmm. be put through the morbidity of a pancreatectomy. Now, if you, let's say you see a 1.8 centimeter lesion on imaging, certainly looks like a peanut. Are you biopsying that? And does KI-67 play into your decision at all? Yeah, you've got all the right questions there. Um, so <laughs> That's what I'm here for. Yeah. So no, <laughs> you're doing it well. That's awesome. No, um, so we're not biopsying everything right now, so long as it meets the typical criteria on imaging. So it okay. has to be like small lesion, smooth lesion um, with like smooth borders that does not distort the pancreatic gland, no dilation of the pancreatic duct, and mm -hmm. and um, you know typical enhancement patterns. So if we see all of that and we review those with radiology, then we have a diagnosis. Um, based on imaging. And it's like exceedingly rare that this would be a G3, like or a higher grade lesion yeah, that yeah. would require more aggressive treatment. And to make sure we're not missing those, like the first follow-up imaging we'll do at six months to make okay. sure we're not missing something that would be growing. Um, otherwise, like almost all the time, it's a grade one or a grade two lesion. And, you know, based on observation data, they all do well. The issue with the, the biopsy is twofold. Um, the first one is a resource question. Like, I don't know mm -hmm. how it goes in the U.S., but if I were to ask every single peanut that comes to my office to be biopsied, like, we would fill up the EUS time only with that. Um, I work in a trauma center, right? So lots of CT scans are being done with lots of incidental findings, like seven, eight millimeter lesions. We cannot biopsy everything. Sure, sure. Um, and then the other thing that's up for debate now is um, the accuracy of the FNA and the KI-67 on, um, on, the, on that because you need about a thousand cells to uh, compute the KI-67 and the proliferation index. And you don't necessarily have that on FNAs. Um, so traditionally, it's not considered very accurate. Although I know there is a more a recent uh, publication in Annals of Surgery, I think from the US Consortium on uh, Neuroendocrine Tumors that shows that they had pretty good accuracy compared to surgical specimens. So they might be changing the... the um, you know, traditional thinking there. Yeah, I know RGI doctors are doing a lot of F&B off of EUS, yeah. and so they get a little more. Now, I the interesting question in the U.S. is, are your GI doctors going to get mad if you mad at you if you stop biopsying small peanuts? I think that's <laughs> one thing. Like, I know our GI guys love. You know, they're like, oh, they want all the EUS business. So, you know, oh, they, do they? <laughs> yeah, for sure. They're they're not tapped out like yours, I guess. So. Yeah, we have limited access. Like, I mean, we have enough access for what we need to, but um, they don't need those to fill up their time. Yeah, fair enough. So the other questions that I think come up are, um, are you looking at the lymph nodes? How are you looking at them? And dotatate. So when do you think a dotatate would change your management? And if they have like a big node, are you going after that? Are you worried about that? In the less than two centimeter uh, world. Yeah, so in the less than two centimeter world, I look for lymph nodes on cross-sectional imaging, so either MRI or CT scan. And then one of the other imaging criteria to observe is the lack of microscopic nodes, so no clinical positive nodes. Mm -hmm. If there's you know, microscopic nodes, then I think that 
should not be observed and it's a criteria to go to surgery. Um, but the reality is if you have a lesion that's less than two centimeter with no evidence of microscopic nodes, the risk of lymph node metastasis is around 6%. So then people are going to say, okay, well, you cannot leave those 6% in the body. What's going to happen to all those patients? Oh my right. God, you're leaving cancer in. Well, you know, we don't know that those nodes really matter. It's neuroendocrine yeah, tumor. It's yeah. indolent. It's slow growing. Yes, if you, if you chase them, you're going to find them. doesn't mean that they were meant to do anything to the patient. Actually, there is a pretty interesting data, if I remember correctly, coming out of Moffitt, um, where they looked at cancer-specific survival and uh, overall survival in patients who had um, microscopic nodes versus not. There was no difference whether the patients had microscopic nodes or not. Mm -hmm. So they don't make a difference is the answer, I think, to me. And, and I think, again, the proof is in the pudding. You observe them. And there is no difference in uh, recurrence, metastases, or um, survival in the long term when they are observed. So you might make ourselves feel better by finding the nodes. Yeah. doesn't mean they needed to be found. Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a staging oh, operation, right? I mean, at that point in time. So if you, if you don't have clinically macroscopic nodes in the less than two centimeter world, well, the only, if there's any reason to go to the operating room and you find lymph nodes, that was a staging operation. But if you already know they're clinically positive, I don't necessarily think that's going to change outcomes, right? Is that what you're trying to say? I guess what I'm trying to say, if you, if you don't see nodes, like on imaging, um, yeah. resecting them and finding disease doesn't make a difference right. for the patient. So, um, yeah, it is a staging operation. And then I don't think that if you're not impacting somebody's survival or a disease course, uh, doing a staging operation that has a risk of pancreatic fistula, pancreatic insufficiency, and so on, is it's not worth it to me. What do you see the role of dotate in these patients being? Because I think in some ways it's... I feel like a little bit in certain communities, it's like dotatate's like a new toy and they want to use it. And so they're like, well, shouldn't you get a dotatate to make sure they don't have a positive note or something like that? So do you think that that is, has a role? When do you think it's useful? You're, I like assume a, you're probably yeah. not getting on dota on everybody. Like a lot of things that dotatate is showing us things we had never seen before. Yeah. And so yeah. we don't know what to do with it. Yeah. So I would say, again, like, let's go back to basics. Um, in patients that didn't have a dotatate, they did well. We did not harm them by not operating. If anything, we avoided complications. And um, I think we don't need to do dotatate on those. If it's somebody with, again, non-functional, sporadic, less than two centimeter with very typical imaging, including no evidence of enlarged nodes, just leave them alone. Like I think by doing a dotatate, you're looking for information you won't know what to do with, and it's probably going to lead to unnecessary surgery. So you know, um, it's, it's a very different setting to work in Canada where we have limited access to some, a few things, but I mm -hmm. think a lot of access that we have is evidence-based. Um, you know, things are funded by the public healthcare system if there's evidence of benefit and um, learning to work in that environment is, is actually really good in, in learning how to use your resources when it really makes a difference in management. So now you said for surveillance, you're, you're re-scanning everybody at six months. And then are you using any tumor markers for pancreatic neuronic tumor? Yeah, right now there's no guideline, right? So it's mm -hmm. all sort of um, yeah. judgment. And, and on a different topic, which is pancreatic cyst, I remember hearing Peter Allen when he visited in Toronto say, um, if you, you know, image them every two weeks, it's too often. And if you image them every 10 years, it's too little. Um, so the answer is probably somewhere in the middle, but we don't know where. And that stuck with me. And I think it's really true also for peanuts. Uh, so what we do, and I don't know that's the right answer, is we'll do yeah. one at six months, again, to make sure we haven't missed one of those more like aggressive yeah. ones. And then we do a year, and then we will yeah. do every other year um, with MRI or CT, like a triphasic CT, so you have an arterial phase. Now, with regards to tumor markers, I, I hope we can use that in the future. Uh, we don't know um, which ones to use and how to use mm -hmm. them at the moment. Uh, what I would say mm -hmm. is chromogranin is a terrible tumor marker. Yeah. Do yeah. not use it. If people remember one thing from this podcast is stop using <laughs> chromogranin. It's not helpful. It ju just generates patient anxiety and doesn't help with much. Um, and then there's a lot of new tumor markers um, including like genetic analyses that are coming down the pipeline, but we don't know right now exactly what they mean or how they should be used, but it's a very exciting area. So are you using any right now? Like, are you just checking, like we've been checking pancreas statin just to gather some data mm -hmm. on it and kind of get used to it. Are you doing anything right now, even if it's not the end all be all? Yeah, we're not using any uh, tumor markers right now. Okay. Um, we're trying to get pancreas statin, like 
if we want to use it now, it's like a sort of special order type oh, thing. Okay. We have to okay. get approval for different people, but uh, we're putting together a proposal to have it replace chromogranin on uh, under formulary okay. for for tests. So we just have to prove to them that there's a difference in management. But I think there's some interesting data, uh, in particular, like out of the University of Iowa, showing that it, it mm -hmm. makes a difference, not only for small peanuts, like um, a lot of other neuroendocrine as well. Perfect. Dr. Hallett, I had a question about that actually, because I feel like from a trainee perspective, it's very difficult to learn about peanuts because it seems as though many of the textbooks and resident resources focus on what seems to be antiquated tumor markers or um, the kind of rare classic functional peanuts. Do you have any advice for residents for um, getting a better sense of what these actually look like in clinical practice? And that's a very good question um, because I, I have that discussion often with, with trainees in clinic um, and, I, and I would send them a number of papers. So the things I can refer you to, and again, I will not agree with everything in there, but that's mm -hmm. what the experts would agree with. Uh, the uh, NANET, so the North American mm -hmm. Neuroendocrine Society guidelines are very um, well done. Uh, there is one on small bowel, there's one on peanuts. And they go like for surgical management or some for medical management. And they go through questions that you encounter like commonly in clinical practice. So like this is one of them. Like what do you do with a small peanut that's non-functional? And then they will summarize the evidence and the discussion that was had by the panel. And then after that, give sort of what the panel concluded on. So they're, they're well made in that way that you can really learn as you go through the recommendations. Okay, great. I'll link those in the show notes. So now let's cross that threshold, right? It's like 2.05 centimeters. Uh, are you operating on those or what are you doing in that situation? You know, it's sort of an arbitrary cutoff. Yeah, I'm operating on those. Um, okay. You're right. It's arbitrary, uh, yeah. like a lot of things in surgery and medicine. Yep. Yep. Um, but you have to, you know, yeah. make a yeah, cutoff at some somewhere. point. Draw a line somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. Now, so is that true? <laughs> Is that different for you for left or right, right? So if it's a Whipple and it's 2.1, you're still going to do it versus a distal? Yeah, I think I'll do it. I'll, I look at it from a biological perspective and sort of what helps the patient. Um, mm -hmm. So I will do it in more circumstances. Um, there's some like extreme clinical scenarios where I have not operated, but that's more because the patient is not medically operable. Yeah. So we've had, you know, sort of older patients that would not do well with a pancreatectomy. Um, and so for those, what our team has done is treat them with SBRT. Um, okay. You know, traditionally, there's this thought that neuroendocrine are not sensitive to radiation, uh, but that's with sort of older external radiation approaches. And with the ones that we have right now, where we can give higher doses. Um, mm -hmm. it, is, uh, it is effective. And even in some functional peanuts and patients who are not medically fit for surgery, uh, we've used it with good uh, both endocrine and tumoral control. Um, I think that experience has mm -hmm. been published by... Um, the Radonk who works in our endocrine clinic, Dr. Meyerhog, um, just I think last year. Now, do you ever study the biology before you go do a Whipple? Like, you know, put them on an SSA for six months or even do nothing for six months? I know Mike Kim talks about that sometimes. Um, you know, just kind of getting a sense of the biology before you go do a Whipple on them. Yeah, uh, it's, it's okay to do it, but I think if you have an assessment of the grade, that won't change anything because, you know, you're talking about testing biology. In yeah. pancreatic adeno or colorectal liver meds, it makes sense because those will grow within three to six months, right? Yeah. Neuroendocrine may not grow during like for three to six months. Indeed, like if you look at the clarinet data, because we're talking about PNET, so it's the only mm -hmm. RCT that included PNET about lenreotide. Um, if I'm not mistaken, the time to progression in the placebo group was 18 months. So that means like without doing anything, you can have 18 months median time <laughs> to progression. Um, so yes, but for how long? Like that's, that's the question. Um, so we don't tend to do that a lot, so long as we know it's well-differentiated, low-grade, and then you're going to tell me, oh, yeah, but you just told us that the FNA is not good for this, right? <laughs> I was going to ask that, actually. I can see <laughs> you coming there. Um, so <laughs> that's where I think that's where the dotatate is really good. Um, okay. Because dotatate, it's not only that it finds like METs, um, it's that it tells you something about the biology of the lesion. Like It's called functional imaging, so there's a reason for that. And so depending on the avidity of the dotatate, um, you can know whether you're dealing with a low-grade lesion um, that will do well, uh, so grade one or grade two. Or if you have like less avidity, then you have to have a suspicion that's a more aggressive lesion that may not fare as well with surgery. Um, 
And in those circumstances, you could argue you can do an FDG PET scan, although I think both in the US and Canada, it's hard to get two PET scans for one person. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so the opposite of FDG PET, where brighter is scarier, for Dota tape, brighter is actually reassuring. Exactly. The last question on peanuts. Actually, I have two more. Um, <laughs> one is, so let's say you do that dotate and surprise, you find a couple liver mets. How does that change your management? What's your line for I should go take everything out versus maybe medical therapy is the right answer for this patient? Yeah, that's um, a very different scenario when, when you get there. Um, so as much as if I were to talk about small bowel neuroendocrine, if there's metastases, I will be very aggressive in resecting and debulking to over 70% because they, they have endocrine secretion. They, if they grow, there's a huge difference in people quality of life. Mm -hmm. And they have a good prognosis long-term. Peanuts are a bit different. Their prognosis is good, but not as good as small bowel nets. They also are less often functional. So the endocrine control is not always a concern in, in debulking. Mm -hmm. And so I'm not as aggressive uh, in resecting metastatic uh, peanuts. Um, I think if in the US and most centers are probably more aggressive than what we are, and I'm trying to learn by watching my colleagues um, about where I should push the envelope more than what I'm doing right now. And I would say that, like, you know, where I've moved over the past few years is if you have, um, you know, younger patients where the peanuts have been stable, uh, where they haven't declared themselves to be super aggressive, where you confirm on the Dota tape that they, they are super avid and they're the good players, um, then I would consider going for it. Doing both, like doing the primary and the liver mets, I would only do if it's a tail. I'm, I'm not as mm -hmm. aggressive as doing it with a Whipple. I'm not sure that we derive benefit from that. Although I know some people would argue with me here. And the reality is we don't have a lot of data. So when mm -hmm. we talk about debulking for nets, you're going to see a lot of data about that and look carefully at the studies. Most of them are like 75% or 80% small bowel nets. The peanuts in there are very limited and you have very few studies that are purely peanuts debulking. I think one of the only ones is by Rod Palmier where he reported his personal experience on 40 patients. Um, so all that to say, not as aggressive, very careful in selecting those patients. It's not a no-no, but it's a kind of most often a no in, in my yeah. hands. I don't know if I'm right. I might be proven wrong in the future. Now, in terms of debulking to over 70%, whether it's small bowel or pancreas, does that matter about the sites? Uh, let's say of all the 100% of the disease, 70% of it's in the liver, for example. Do you ever leave the primary intact? Is it purely just a percentage-wise, or does, does the site of the primary and site of metastasis influence your, your plan for debulking? And does that have to do with function of the tumor sometimes, too? Yeah, the, the function of the tumor is very important uh, because... Um, Sometimes it's the only reason to debulk is for people's quality of life because they're miserable from carcinoid syndrome or the functional syndrome. Um, with regards to what tumor you look at, I look at the overall burden of the tumor, and that's where dotatate is, is important now. Mm -hmm. um, if it's liver dominant, even if there's some very small lesions in the bones, for example, I think we can still go for it uh, for a small bowel, as long as we're like the overall burden of tumor in the entire body for going for over 70%. I would go for it. The other thing is, um, I think you have to have the primary out. Like it doesn't really make sense to be to do a massive debulking, leaving the primary in. Um, so tend to want to have the primary resected and debulking of most of the disease sites, liver and other abdominal sites, retroperitoneal lymph nodes is something we see a more way more now with dotatate mm -hmm. that we did not fully appreciate before. Um, and uh, peritoneal carcinomatosis. So we'll do some uh, peritoneal strippings and, and debulkings that way. One thing about debulking extrahepatic disease, uh, so we've looked at our experience a few years ago, um, it's published in Annals of Surgical Oncology, and patients have like favorable long-term outcomes. The few things that we learned is the G2s uh, and the non-small bowel primaries don't do as well. They tend, they, they tend to recur very quickly, even mm -hmm. after we do our best work, and, um, and then you, you wonder if you did the right thing. So now the ones we'll do are really like the G1s, uh, small bowel, um, we'll go for that. Like I'm operating on one this week, actually, for uh, peritoneal strippings. Would you ever, so in terms of like a, a model for colorectal liver metastases, for example, um, in any situation, would you ever debulk the liver um, and leave a small bowel primary in place? If it's, let's say if that's unresectable. That's a very good question. Um, 
I've never done it. I've never seen uh, my senior partner, Dr. Law, do it either. I think would be in exceptional circumstances. So one thing I can think of is someone with very, very florid carcinoid syndrome, and you cannot control the liver in any other way. And, and that's pretty unusual, right? Because with, um, with chemoembolization or blend embolization, radioembolization these days, PRT and all that, there's so many ways that you can control the liver that I, I don't know that that would be a very common uh, indication. That would be the only circumstance, but I, I cannot think of a patient that would meet those criteria yet. So that, that's interesting that, you know, we're always taught that you shouldn't get much carcinoid syndrome just from small bowel. What, what happens with peritoneal disease? Do they get syndromic because it's drained directly into the systemic system? Do, they, do you see more carcinoid syndrome from that extrahepatic disease? Yeah, it depends on the, on the burden. Like, of course, like it depends on yeah, how much sure, sure there is. Sure. Uh, but yeah, you can find that. And the retroperitoneal nodes also yeah, sometimes like they're not really big and they create a lot of trouble. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, the last question I had was about splenic preservation for when you do a distal. Do you preserve the spleen or not? I'm just curious. Why not? Fair enough. I think, There's you all know, those lymph them, nodes in there, though. You got to get those lymph nodes. There are, but you can get them without the spleen. So to me, it depends where the tumor is. And also, uh, what's the anatomy of the pancreatic tail in relationship with the splenic hilum? Like, and it's, that, that's really a technical thing. But if you're able to get nodal harvest um, with it, then I think it, it's helpful. And again, we're talking about, you know, larger peanuts because the smaller peanuts, I don't think the nodes matter um, like we talked about before. But if you look at the Nanet's consensus on peanuts, um, there is a section about that exact yeah. question. I know, like I told you, it's based on questions. So they asked that particular yeah, yeah. questions that were looked at by one of the panelists. But that's where and we got they our detail list. The evidence. We're just asking you all the nanogram. We're just going through the guidelines. He's <laughs> just checking if I remember what we said at that meeting. Yeah, exactly. We're testing. <laughs> and then the other thing that comes up for the trainees a lot is when do you take the gallbladder out when you go in and resect uh, a peanut or any net, really? Anytime you can. If you can, do it. Okay. And it's, it's right there. Do it. Although, not for the reason you're thinking of, oh. probably. Um, so most people will say that the traditional teaching is you do it because those patients are going to be on somatostatin analogs. Yeah. Um, and I see that Beth is like nodding her head. <laughs> like, yeah. yes, that's like what that we hear. That was on the website. Yeah. <laughs> what the textbook said. Yeah. Is it yeah. there? Yeah. So, you know, yes, um, SSAs can create gallstones, but like in the general population, I don't think that we know that those gallstones are significant and that they will be symptomatic and that they need to be resected. So I wouldn't do it just for that. The reason I do it is because most of those patients, if they don't already have liver mets, will have liver mets. And one of the mainstay of treatments is embolization. And if you embolize, one of the number one complications we get, and that's a nightmare to deal with mm. in patients who go on to live for years, is ischemic cholecystitis. So their gallbladder is gone. That cannot happen. So that's the reason why I take it out in most patients. Natural predator of the gallbladder. You're just taking it out. <laughs> yeah, I love it. And the interventional radiologist. <laughs> Okay, so uh, what we'll move on to now um, is some interesting work that you've done recently as a health services researcher. Um, this is particularly interesting from the perspective of another country in Canada, but um, you're the last author on multiple publications from the Restore Cancer Group. Um, why don't you tell us a little bit about what that is? I know that it's focused on outcomes for older um, cancer patients and what the, the goals of, of that research group are and maybe some of the recent findings. Yeah, that's um, one of my other favorite topics besides neuroendocrine tumors uh, is health services research. I, I do a lot of this using population-based data that we have in Ontario. Um, you know, we're lucky because with the public healthcare system in Canada, every single encounter with the healthcare system is uh, captured in administrative databases. So we have access to everything. Any uh, person that is in Ontario, we have access to survival data, healthcare encounters data, healthcare treatments, um, even patient reported outcomes now. And so that allows for a lot of, you know, very like large population based, um, very detailed studies. And one of the things that we're interested in a number of years ago is how do older adults fare after cancer surgery? You know, really rooted in, in what we see in clinical practice. Um, we often have elderly patient. I'm not, you know, um, that's not news to anybody uh, in our practices. I think we're all going to become geriatric surgical oncologists um, if we are not already in the next few years. And those are difficult discussions to have, you know. Um, they don't necessarily have the same goals of care 
Um, Decision-making is difficult because there's more frailty, there's more comorbidities. Um, the life expectancy is not the same after a certain age. So then you wonder whether the morbidity of surgery is worth it for the survival we're providing them. And really, I felt like we didn't have a lot of long-term outcomes answer on this. And that's what people ask you in clinic. Like I have a lot of patients, if I tell them, you know, this is a big surgery, it's a hepatectomy, it's a Whipple, like you can die from the surgery and you can have all those complications. Like, you know what? I don't care. I, that, that's fine with me. I've had a good life. If I, if I die from this surgery, that, that's what happens. Um, but what they care about is how they're going to live. So if they live, how are they going to be? Uh, are they going to be independent? Are they going to enjoy their life? And when I looked around, we couldn't find a lot of data on this. So we put together this group, which includes um, surgical oncologists, medical oncologists, radiation oncologists. Uh, we have geriatricians on there. We have uh, intensive care uh, physicians as well um, and um, patients and caregivers also, mm. most importantly. And we wanted to look at what are the long-term outcomes like, like not the three months data, the six, 12 months, five years data, and like really patient-centered outcomes of like, as close to functional outcomes we can assess with uh, population-based data. So the outcomes we looked at were, um, you know, time at home um, in the years after surgery, cancer-specific survival in those patients and how it compares to non-cancer-specific uh, survival, non-cancer death. We also looked at uh, patient report outcomes with symptom burden after the operation and then uh, the need for home care uh, as a measure of sort of independence after surgery. And finally, the ability to remain in one's home. So something that's called aging at home, so in which we measure as the risk of being admitted to a nursing home or um, a nursing uh, healthcare facility. So th those are all the things that we looked at for all cancer surgeries. And then we've done different analyses, but mostly wanted to first describe those outcomes, right? So that we have some data to share with patients as we're having those discussions. That's how it all started. Interesting. So what percentage of patients undergoing cancer surgery, I mean, maybe we could focus more on HPV type operations, end up requiring those types of services? And how do you use that data to, to discuss with your patient, let's say he's a candidate for, let's say, a right hepatectomy, for example? Yeah, so I use it a lot for counseling at the moment, just so that they know um, what they can expect. I think that these data can be used to explain to patients what's gonna happen. So number one, they can decide if that's something they wanna go through. And number two, they can prepare themselves. Like it's, so that the people feel like we're getting these data to tell to patients, you shouldn't have surgery. Actually to me, it's the complete opposite. It's for them to learn what's gonna happen if they have surgery and go into it clear-minded and also allow them and their families and, and care partners to prepare for what's to come. And you know, in particular, if I think about patients with frailty, um, I had one of my partners who said, um, you know, why, why do you measure frailty? Why do you write that in all your notes? Like it just labels the patient as frail and then nobody will want to operate on them. To me, it's a complete, like, one thing I learned from doing this work is I actually now operate on more patients with frailty because I, hmm. I explain it to them. And I think that their perspective is a bit different than our perspective. You know, for somebody who lives with some level of dependence, going back to a little bit of a higher level of dependence after surgery might be totally reasonable. Like it's about where you come from, right? And, and that change after surgery. Whereas if as a person who lives completely independently, we only look at the dependence they have post-op, we might say, oh my God, that's horrible. Nobody would want to do that. Like, why would we operate on these patients? And in reality for them, from where they're coming from, it's not that much different. And they're perfectly happy with that. Like their mindset is different. So I, I use these data a lot to uh, counsel patients and I've learned a lot from just letting them talk about it um, and learning where mm -hmm. they're coming from. And, you know, I've operated on some of them where they went to a nursing home after, or they needed a lot of home care after. And, and some of, you know, the members of my team were like, but why did you do this? Like you didn't do so well post-op and the patients themselves are very happy. Like that's what we talked about before. And, and I'm fine with this. You know, for HPV, in general, what I quote right now is number one, the home care data. So in that, in general, long-term, so from beyond one year and up to five years, about um, one out of five patients will require home care. So will require some services to be able to stay at home. Um, and that's sort of a level of like chronic dependence that they want to know about. So I tell them mm -hmm. about that. Um, and then the other thing, I tell him about is the risk of admission to a long-term care, that's what we call it in Canada, so a nursing home, uh, which at one year 
um, is close to 40% after major pedal building surgery wow. in patients over seven years old. Um, so I let them know about that. And that often triggers discussions about what does this look like um, and whether that's something they would be willing to live with or not. The thing we want to focus on now is sort of building uh, prognostic models for this because that's different for each patient. Um, so what we'd like to do is have um, a patient and provider facing web tool where you can enter some, you know, a few characteristics and it creates an estimate for that person. And what we want to measure is uh, will be the ability to remain alive and at home and the long-term need for home care. Um, so telling people like if you survive the operation, like if you make it to that infamous 90 days, this is what your life might look like. And, and then based on the home care number, we'll have something that comes up that says, well, those home care services usually look like this. It's for like help bathing or help with meals or because mm. we have all that data broken down um, just for really to counsel patients. That's what we're working on right now with a team at the University of Ottawa called the Project Big Life. They've done those calculator for cardiovascular health, for example. Um, so we're, we're building those models as we speak. For those that are interested, we'll place it in the show notes um, that this is, a. I think, a lot of this discussion is from a publication in 2021 from Annals of Surgery, um, a population-based analysis for patients undergoing HPV surgery. And, this, and just to clarify, this was for patients who are over 70. Yeah, it's over 70. There is more coming. Like, we have a paper under review right now about the uh, ability to remain alive and at home. So that's one's under review. Um, we have another one which is looking at patient reported outcomes, uh, so patient reported symptom burden um, that we analyzed over the year after surgery in patients over seven years old. Um, so in Ontario, we're, we were lucky because the um, PRO screening that we have at each cancer center visit is all captured in provincial data sets, so we can link mm -hmm. that with administrative healthcare data sets. And we were able to look at each month after you know, cancer surgery for patients over 70, how many patients are, what's the proportion of patients that will report moderate to severe symptoms for each of the nine symptoms of what's called the ESAS score, the Edmonton Symptoms Assessment System. And what we saw is that they do well. So, you know, we, you think that older adults struggle and probably their symptoms are, are really bad. So yes, in the first, you know, for some big surgeries like thoracics or HPV, their symptoms are initially quite high, but as time passes, those symptoms uh, go down and they stabilize at around, you know, six months and they do fairly well. And you have the same pattern in patients who live with frailty. Their symptoms are higher than the patients without frailty, but they have the same pattern when they stabilize after a number of months. And so I think that that's a good news story for patients. Um, that paper is also under review. The other thing we found in that paper is we looked at what happens when they receive adjuvant therapy. Uh, mm -hmm. you know, lots of older adults are very scared of adjuvant therapy that is gonna make them feel horrible. Chemo has really bad rep. And what we saw is uh, around the time of chemotherapy and the patients who receive it, there is not much change in symptom burden. So, you know, I think that that speaks to the ability to now manage um, side effects and manage symptoms around the time of chemotherapy. And, and that's something I tell patients as well. Like, you know, you're scared of chemo, but overall, most people do really well and their symptoms don't increase that much. So maybe something that you can consider. Um, mm -hmm. So that, that's how I integrate it in practice. Well, that's very useful. So hopefully I mean, these two will be published. I'm sure they will. For patients who are over 70 then, who kind of fit into this conversation you're talking about, do do you have them evaluated by a team other than yours uh, geriatrics team is there a kind of uh, elderly patient focused care team that like optimizes patients you know prehabilitation nutrition expectations preparing the home that sort of thing um, or is this all integrated within a operative visit with with dr hallett that's the dream. I would love that. <laughs> the dream is not the operative visit with me. The dream is having the whole team and that whole yeah, setup. Yeah, yeah. I love to have that. We don't have it right now. I wish we could yeah. build it. Like we're really trying hard. Um, so I think there is a lot of resource issue. And because there's so many of those patients now, it, it mm -hmm. becomes a bit hard. So I feel like, you know, like I said at the beginning, we're all going to be geriatric surgical oncologists or geriatric HPV surgeons. We all have to take a little bit of that on ourselves. And so to me, that means um, frailty assessment, it's really easy to do. Like there's something called the clinical frailty score, the Rockwood score um, that was actually developed in Canada. 
it's very straightforward. Like if you just Google it, there's this little sheet and you can, um, you can just go through like regular questions with your patients that are super simple. And then you can um, put them in, into that um, frailty assessment or score. And everybody that scores above four ideally would be referred for a comprehensive geriatrics assessment. So that's sort of a screen that we can do to have them then referred and seen by geriatricians um, for you know, pre-op optimization, but also post-op co-management. Um, there's mm -hmm. actually a randomized controlled trial showing that post-op co-management is beneficial for patients. Um, the other thing is about the prehab. So we don't have a specific prehab program. Um, hopefully, leadership in my institution is listening to this podcast. Um, <laughs> Give me the and, emails and we'll send and, this to them. <laughs> yeah, and we will work on getting one because I know it's a priority. It's just, you know, there's so many things right now happening. Um, but what we have, though, is a number of trials that we're enrolling on. So there's a, if you want to check them out, there's a team at the University of Ottawa led by Daniel McIsaac, who's an anesthesiologist there. And they're doing a lot of work on prehab, in particular, some trials in uh, prehabilitation in patients with frailty. Uh, so right now we're enrolling those patients on something called the PREPARE trial, which is a trial for uh, prehabilitation. And we have uh, a few more coming up with like different versions of the prehabilitation program coming. Very interesting. Yeah. I guess just to finish this discussion here, do you mind summarizing some of the findings for what was a really interesting publication in JAMA Surgery for the all-cause versus cancer-specific deaths for patients in this, in this um, age group of 70 and over? Because I found this very interesting. I think it's a question that we always talk about when, when seeing people that are older and um, patients want to know what, the, what their risk of dying from their cancer is versus everything else. Yeah, and that's the key is patients want to know, right? Yeah, they want to know. <clears throat> and a lot of so this work is, is descriptive. And um, so it helps with counseling and preparation, knowing where they're going. Um, and so this one, I think one thing that we learned beyond just, you know, providing descriptions that anybody can refer to and in the supplement, there's details by cancer sites as well so that you can use those to relate the information to your patients. Um, we learned that there's some cancers um, where the you know, non-cancer death exceeded cancer death um, at the beginning. And um, those are not HPV cancers because HPV cancers are, are big, bad cancers. So in general, the cancer death will always be higher than, than the risk of non-cancer death. But, but there's some cancers, um, you know, like melanoma, for example, prostate or breast cancer, um, where the non-cancer death exceed cancer death in the first uh, three years after surgery. And um, I think one of the important messages there was that it means to me that we can we should treat those patients. There's a huge focus right now on like de-escalating some of the cancer care in older adults. And for sure, there are some interventions that may not be needed, but I think it's still good to treat those patients um, because you know their cancers are going to do well if they have surgery. Remember that all this data is in patients who were operated, right? right? So they're not in untreated patients. Um, and and to me, that was one of the the big findings we had there. I think another key finding from upcoming publications is that we talked about the frailty assessment. The frailty assessment matters no matter the surgery you're doing. Um, whether you're doing the littlest liver resection or the biggest Whipple with vein reconstruction, um, frailty assessment matters. Uh, frailty makes it different in patient outcomes for all types of surgery from you know, partial mastectomy to complex Whipples. And so it is important to have it assessed in all patients and not only for high-risk surgery. Good point. Dr. Hallett, one of your publications I really loved was about how the patient information for neuroendocrine tumors is actually mm -hmm. of fairly low quality. And you're one of my favorite people to follow on Twitter. And I just wanted to know, while I know a lot of us use Twitter for professional communication, do you ever use it to reach out to patients? Oh, that's a tough one. Um, thanks for the very kind Twitter comments. Um, I got into Twitter a lot because of the pandemic, because the first few weeks we couldn't operate. I had you know, really <laughs> nothing else to do for a few weeks until we were reassigned. Um, and, and it was really a, a game changer for me in, in, my, uh, in my career. But that's a tough one. Mm -hmm. Electronic communication with patients is really tough. So with individual patients, no. Um, I tried to keep communication with individual patients on a very uh, sort of formal level. Um, so that would be like either, you know, through my assistant or you know in clinic visits and that sort of thing um if where like where i use twitter to communicate with patients is with um 
patient associations or you know patient advocacy groups and and that makes a huge difference um i got in touch with a lot of them because of that like the I guess Los Angeles Carcinoid and Consumer Society um, with the Carcinoid uh, Cancer Foundation um, and, and those kind of associations, they reached out to me because of my Twitter presence uh, and I will exchange with them on Twitter. And, and that's important for two things. Number one, I think reaching out to patients because of that, I've done a lot of events where we like take questions from patients or like give presentations and webinars to patients to educate them and empower them with this disease. And to me, that's a real important. And the, the second thing is, um, that's how also I had them engaged in the research we're doing. Like patient engagement and research is something I could talk about for an hour as well. Um, but uh, having those contacts via Twitter have uh, allowed me to have much more patients um, and advocates involved in the research and has really uh, stepped up our game for the research group. Yeah, just a uh, public service announcement. You are a great Twitter follow and it's just yes. your last name followed by your first name is your Twitter handle, correct? Thanks. Perfect. So, so anyone who hasn't followed you yet should do that now. So I think we've blown right through our typical, usually we try to keep it under an hour, but I think we've broken through that boundary with you. Uh, it really went, so much fun. It went past. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That, that, that's so much fun. I love this discussion. So we really appreciate your time and expertise and uh, you know anything else you want to Shout out to the HPBA uh, audience. We'll give you the mic if there's anything else you want to throw out there. Um, just keep engaging. I think that the best thing that happened to me um, in my career is making connections with others outside of my institution. And, and I've learned um, so much by uh, thinking differently and talking with all sorts of people, whether it's on Twitter or now at in-person conferences, which are happening again. You know, take every opportunity you can to engage with different people. Um, and the HPBA, the HPBA are, are great for that. Thanks so much for having me. I had lots of fun tonight.